Um, what I thought I'd do is just get us to have a, I don't know, it's, it's one of those, you know, late in the afternoon kind of activities. So let's just do a bit of an imaginary scene. So I chose a country like Spain because it's in some ways like Australia, like it's, you know, it's not, it's not a third world country, it's got modern facilities, very metro, but it does predominantly uh, have a different language. And I'm thinking no one here speaks Spanish. Okay, so let's for a moment imagine you've just landed in Spain as a new migrant, okay? So let's have a think about what kind of feelings and fears might you have in, in, in the initial weeks and months. Just, just open it up. Well, the language people being able to understand English. Yeah. Okay, and, and what, how do you think you feel about that? I don't know, you're trying to, I suppose it depends on just going on holiday or going to live there. No, so migration, you're actually... Yeah, I've actually moved, yeah. Yeah, so you, you, you've been trying to learn the language, yeah. Yeah? Just navigating, just navigating streets, aware of, you know, cultural perspectives. Like, I know we went to China once, but I went to China two years ago. Yeah. I, I landed seriously in the middle of that place and thought, oh, I am overwhelmed. Yeah. And it was the best experience of my life. Yeah. Because it made me completely do a 360 yeah. in respect to coming back. And, and, and yeah. particularly for the Chinese and the Asian cultures here, thinking this is how they feel. Yeah. Yeah, overwhelmed is actually a very common... Um, yep. yep. Other, other, other feelings and fears? I'd expect it to be a feeling of powerlessness. Yeah. It comes with that feeling of being overwhelmed and having, like, it's one thing for me to interact with migrants in Australia because I have the power. Mm. I know the language and I know the, mm. the culture and I know the government. But in a, if I was migrating to Spain, I'd... I'd be giving up all of that power. Yeah. And it'd be very easy in that situation. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, any other thoughts? Fears, Um, feelings? Yeah, probably something similar to Michael, but uh, I think coming from our cultural background, the Indonesian government hasn't been the kind of solid or sort of... um, clean government like you have here. So um, possibly moving to Spain, that's the idea of having social security or uh, whether whether we can we can trust the, the local government even that, that, that that's probably good point, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Well, can you trust the authorities? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And also if there's anything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Any other thoughts? Any other fears or as it goes on you, you might start to feel lonely because because you're not able to speak the language, so mm. how do you bridge into real friendships and relationships? Yeah. And you probably, I mean, this is typical migrant behaviour, I assume, would be you'd probably try and seek, search out, are there any other Australians yeah. that you can find somewhere here yeah. that we can start meeting with that might help you make sense of yeah. what's going on here. Yeah, which one is church or, yeah. yeah, well, we'll get to that in a moment. Um, Okay, that's the initial weeks and months. How might it change over time? Like, you know, we're now looking at two years, three years. So, assuming you've got a basic handle of the language now, what, what might change in terms of fears and feelings? I think it would be possible to have getting by language skills but still be shut out of relational language mm-hmm. ability. So, I think you could think, I'm not totally at sea. I can get from here to there. I can read the street signs. But my ability to talk heart-to-heart with someone who's actually a local here, that might still be very frustrating, yeah. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think also 
Yeah. Mm. So you don't really have this sense of trust yeah. that is transparent between, and I think I would feel that at that point down the track, just thinking, well, yes, you've got basic language skills, but where does that take you? Yeah. Um, and, you know, finding people that would actually be happy to engage you yeah. and to trust you um, as a foreigner. Yeah, you, I mean, you, you'd... You're talking about it as if you still feel like an outsider in some sort of ways, even though you can get by now. Yeah. Any other thoughts? A few years in. You might find that I, mean, I think I've heard this suggest that the kids get the language relatively yeah. quickly, and end up by default having them communicate perhaps in some situations, which kind of further isolates you at some level. So you kind of yes. end up kind of outboarding. Can you just tell the guy yeah. that we need a barbecue? Very true, actually. Water. The kids, the kids, um, the kids kind of settle in. They they don't speak with an accent. Mm. You do, um, and they might actually a little bit be a little bit embarrassed about you. Mm. Um, and they're giving you instructions on what what's the Spanish way. Yeah. You know, yeah. So there, there's that kind of potential, and then as they get older, that that rift may actually become greater. Yeah. yeah. I suspect at the same time that family would become hugely important because the nuclear family or, or even the connections you might make with other Australians in Spain would be, like, that's where you feel safe. Yeah. So if your kids are kind of the medium for you interacting with Spain, then you kind of go, well, you need to stay with me because mm. I can't operate in Spain without my children. Yeah. So it becomes this... True, yeah. I, I need this safety. I need yeah. my family, otherwise I can't get... Yeah. I can't survive in Spain without my kids or... Well, you guys have mentioned it already, but my next kind of uh, twist in the scenario is, now imagine that you meet some Aussies in your city. How do you think you would feel and act? Like, you know, after maybe a month, finally you meet a fellow Aussie. Like, you what's... Yeah, yeah. Like, you could just feel the relief, right? It's just... You know, and and you'd probably do like tacky things like let's have an Aussie barbecue or something. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it'd be things you wouldn't necessarily do in Australia, but yeah. And I think at that point, you you know, we talk about um, the social divides or you know, social classes. Yeah, that's right. And you may never associate with them in Australia, no. but there you would like, yeah, you would stick to them like like glue, wouldn't you? Mm-hmm. Because it'd just be this wow, this is like home, and you're part of that now. What would be different? Oh, sorry. How likely is it that you would try to connect with them regularly? Is that pretty easy to answer? Yeah? Like, heaps likely. Yeah. <laughs> like, again, you may not even like them in normal circumstances. <laughs> yeah? <laughs> yeah? yeah? Um, okay. What would be different with your encounter with fellow Aussies if it happened five years after your arrival in settlement rather than in the initial weeks and months? So, now imagine that it did, nothing's happened for five years. You haven't met any Aussies, and so now you you know you get the language, you get your, you, you know you you know how to get around. Would would anything be different if you had met them five years in? I think you're, I think you're in cult, you're becoming part of the culture. You would have done much more if you hadn't found them in the first five years, and that if you found them five years in, it might be nice to have them as friends, but you wouldn't be clinging to them like drowning people, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think, if you found them early, you might actually withdraw and cling to you each other. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, would you still try and connect with them? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's loud, Aussies. Yeah. 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 No, I think you would because I mean that's yeah, that's, that's how you that's your identity. Yeah. So, for, but maybe for different reasons. Like in the first five first few weeks, it might be just out of sheer survival instinct desperation. But maybe five years on, it's still this is part of my identity. I still feel like because it's the heart language thing. Like this is you talking about. Like you you just chat with them. Just because you can. And not so that you can't speak Spanish, but you, you get to talk your heart language with these people. And it's not even just English. It's, you know, it's Aussie English. It's the accent. It's the, you know, everything feels a bit more like home. So, yeah, for different reasons, but you, you would still connect. Now, the reason um, uh, I kind of wanted to put us in that situation is because a lot of people ask, you know, why are there so many ethnic churches? Why, um, and and why, um, why do they continue to exist, um, and why actually are they, you know, overall actually growing? Um, and I'd like to say all ethnic churches exist for an evangelistic reason, but the truth isn't the case at all. Ethnic churches exist because of that, that thing that we've kind of talked through hypothetically, that, that human desire to belong, connect with those with whom we, you share some of the most fundamental parts of your identity, right? So, yeah, I think that, that feeling of, gosh, I just need a connection with, with home. And I need to be with people who... That, that's the feeling that drives ethnic churches. And, you know, they do feel... I mean, if you ever... Like, it doesn't even have to be an ethnic church. It's just that group of mums. You know, those Thai people. Why are they so hard to break into? It's because... This is the kind of feeling that they, they you know. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I think getting ourselves into that mindset can be a little bit helpful. And as you said, your experience in China, that can sometimes, that first culture shock, if you've never experienced it, as now you're the minority, is actually a really helpful uh, mindset to remember. Anytime you're particularly frustrated with any ethnic group, you just, you know, you're trying to break in and you're trying to help them or you're trying to be part and they just kind of like, yeah. Um, I kind of want to talk about... Um, Three things, the characteristics, complexities, and challenges of ethnic churches. Um, but first, though, it's probably helpful to define what we mean by an ethnic church. So this is what I came up with, and it's partly just to, so that we're not talking about anything under the sun. Um, so I'm going to define, for the purpose of this workshop, it's a church or independent congregation whose overt or functional identity is centered around a non-dominant ethnic group. Okay, I'll try and go through bit by bit, but let's firstly go with what is an ethnic group. This is uh, Wikipedia. An ethnic group or ethnicity is a socially defined category of people who identify with each other based on common ancestral, social, cultural, or national experience. So if you were here this morning for um, the talk about HUP, it, it's, it's sort of one particular very strong type of uh, homogeneous unit. It's the one that's linked to you racially, particularly racially, ancestrally. You can broaden it out so that you can, you know, there are ethnic churches that are not Chinese or Korean, but Asian. Um, because there's still enough sort of in that, that's still a kind of homogeneous unit that's fairly strong um, when, there's, when there's a lack of smaller homogeneous units. Because in some countries, there's just not enough of each 
that the Asians actually feel still more affinity towards each other. But generally, the ethnic churches in big cities like Sydney and Melbourne are going to be much, much tighter. Chinese churches, Korean churches, Samoan churches, you know, and, and so on. Now, what I mean by uh, a church or independent congregation, actually, sort of, um, just for the purpose of this workshop, I want to f- f- uh, kind of rule out the ethnic congregations of non-ethnic churches. Okay, so the local Anglican church has decided we're going to have a Chinese service. Um, that, in what I, I kind of don't want to address that directly because I think that's a little bit of a different case because that congregation is still part of the overall, or ideally still part of the overall vision and purpose of that non-ethnic church. They're just trying to do their best to reach the Chinese folk in the area, so they've started a Chinese service. And that may be what some of your churches want to do. Um, in which case, it's not, that's not really an ethnic church. You can call it an ethnic congregation or a homogeneous unit congregation, whatever you want. Now, having said that, though, it is still relevant because some of the things we're going to talk about will show that a lot of the times these congregations may actually become ethnic churches, and more often than not, uh, not for good reasons. It's because they split. So if you don't understand enough about the ethnic congregation, especially if it's going gangbusters and going really well, um, what tends to happen is they'll just say, why are we even part of you? And they want to get out. So, and, but one of the things I will talk about is um, the importance of actually staying together as much as you can. So, yeah, so at the moment, I kind of don't want to include the congregations of, you know, uh, like I, I suppose Bruce Hall's church at Carlingford when they had a few, you know, Chinese service, or even an Australian-born Chinese service. I don't, I don't think that, well, not in my, um, what I'm talking about, qualifies ethnic churches at this point in time. Um, but you can have an ethnic, uh, you can have a congregation that has very little relationship with the church, say the church building. So a lot of ethnic churches are really just congregations meeting in someone else's building. I think they do qualify as, you know what I mean? So I think I, I just kind of want to stress the church or independent congregation. The independent is, is kind of important. Independent doesn't necessarily mean they're financially independent either. Like some ethnic congregations are supported by Korea. So in that sense, they're not independent, like they're not self-sustaining, but they're independent as far as the, the, the other people they're with here. So do you know what I mean? So that's kind of the first thing. Um, overt identity. This actually works. Okay. Um, so the easiest way sometimes to tell if it's an ethnic church is what are they called? <laughs> if it's Chinese Christian church. Okay, so that's overt. If it's a Korean church, if it's a Samoan church. So that's what I mean by overt identity. But then some don't have the name. But their functional identities, it's just for all intensive purposes, even though it's not in their name, um, they, and it's not just that they have a you know, majority of that ethnicity. It's also that they, um, they, they sort of, um, they're not trying to fight it. You know, they're not working really hard to, to push wider than that. They just, they're quite happy being the Asian church, even though Asian church is not part of their name. Mm-hmm. I kind of want to classify that as still an ethnic church. Do you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Um, okay, so that's overt or functional, um, uh, and yeah, then, and by non-dominant ethnic group, I mean in relation to Australia. Like there are some suburbs in cities, like near where I am, where actually the Anglo's are the minority. So, you know, what's really an ethnic church there, an Anglo church? But anyway, but I think it, you know what we mean not is in relation to the whole of Australia. Um, so, predominantly non-Anglo. Uh, ethnicities. Okay, is that is that that's kind of what we're working with? Any kind of questions you want to ask about that? Okay, so we kind of draw a little bit of boundary. So I want to talk about the three C's. Um, 
firstly, characteristics. Just give you, you know, again, I've grown up in an ethnic church, so I just want to tell you a little bit from the inside. Um, what I found helpful is five stages of, for migrants that um, a Muslim scholar, um, written a great book on Islam, he's not, he's not a Christian, but he outlines five stages of what migrants as individuals, but also migrant communities, go through, stages, and they progress. Um, and they are survival, settlement, relationship building, independent identity, and international influence. Um, and he would say that, say, the Muslim community in Australia has only gotten, begun to get to four. Okay, but let me explain what, what he means by each one. Um, a migrant or a migrant community begins by just survivors, kind of that scenario. You just got dropped into Spain. You're just trying to live. You know, you, so uh, you, you, you're going for necessities at that point. I need to find a house. I need to find a job. I need to find schools for my kids. Um, you have little or no language. You're just trying to get by. Um, and if, 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 there, if there are opportunities... Um, you will gravitate towards ghettos or enclaves or suburbs. So there are suburbs in Sydney where, where signs are in Chinese. So you'll go towards those ones because it's just survival instinct. Do you know what I mean? Because uh, you don't read English signs. Um, so that's the first stage. And migrant communities, a new migrant. So, you know, in the 70s when there was that influx of Vietnamese refugees, that's what they're just trying to do. They're just trying to survive. They all move to Cabramatta, you know? Um, the next stage is settlement. And that is when you're beginning to call that place your home, whether as a family, as an individual, or as a community. And so you start thinking about, okay, this is our home now. I may not feel at home, but this is going to be our home. I'm not, I'm not going anywhere. Or there have been some, like, Lebanese uh, migrants who have even tried to go back to Lebanon and have decided not, you know, after the war's finished, but they've come back because it's just... It's just, no, I've got a better future here in Australia. So they will now think about investing into the future. So you might buy a house. You might have assets now, you know. And, of course, your greatest asset for any migrant group is what? Your kids. So your kids, the next generation, becomes so important. Because as you think about the future, you can't help but think about, I want my kids to better than, to, to have a better life than me, Right? Um, now, you will begin to take active part in the community life of your migrant group. So if you can find other Lebanese people, Middle Easterns, you'll, you know, you'll join their clubs and get active there. You'll, you know, you, uh, because now you're, you're in it together. Um, and that's when you begin to move through the next stages, especially as a community, which is relationship building. And that is, you begin to look outwards as well, both as individuals or as a community. Um, so you'll be building communication and relationship and even trust with the dominant cultures. You'll take part in their activities, community gatherings, outside of your ethnic group. So whereas in stage two, it's just you and the other Lebanese. In stage three, it's like, all right, us Lebanese moms, we'll start talking to the Aussie moms or us Chinese. You know, like you start relationship building. Now, um, often though, there are some migrant communities where that doesn't happen with the initial migrant group. That only begins to happen maybe with the next generation, okay? They're the ones that are really great at building relationships. So, yeah, this may be a generational thing, although some, some may do it uh, quicker and easier. Um, then um, the next stage is uh, you get your own independent identity. That is, you begin to be valued and known uh, as a unique part in multicultural Australia. So, you, you know, you begin to... Or Australians begin to talk about you as if you've got this valuable identity. So, you know, Chinese Australians, 
You know, like um, you have a voice now. <laughs> so it's not just that you're important amongst your own circles. It's that you know, when it comes to uh, local issues, government, state issues, they'll consult you because you you actually are a community and you are important. That's on a community level. On the individual level, that you can, either there are similar things. It's you're, you know, you or your family are so established that actually you you're not only you know you're not only kind of playing playing the game by the dominant culture's rules. It's like the dominant culture has come back to you and said, hey, we want your help. Do you know what I mean? You're yeah, you recognize you've got a voice. Um, and and if, it's a, if it's a community, they begin to develop their own ecosystem. So they start having things like educational institutions. So that you can, basically from cradle to grave, they can care for their own people as well. And they be, yeah, as I said, they, you know, they might even have politicians and you know, uh, political parties and so on. So that's when you get independent identity. And that, you know, for, for this uh, Australian Islamic scholar, he thinks we've only just, the Muslims in Australia have only just started that in this decade, so since 2011, 2010, right? And now it's a very scary time for Muslims because of everything that's gone on. And then uh, some communities finally, or people get into what's called international influence, that is you as a you know, Chinese Australian can actually help and influence even back to your country of origin. So, you know, you, you've become such a recognized group of people or you've become so successful in your field as a Chinese Australian that China is actually knocking on your door and saying, hey, come back and help us. Come back and serve us. So that's, that's sort of for every migrant culture and person, that's like your ideal, your dream. Your, your own country, your, the country you've migrated to recognize you and love you, but even your home country has seen that there's something unique that you can contribute as a, like a, as, a, as a migrant who's now gone overseas. So that's the sort of five stages for migrant communities. But you can actually apply that for churches, ethnic churches. So if I can talk you through those five stages, um, ethnic churches start because of that survival instinct. So they're, generally, it's the first generation migrants, they come to this country, they are already Christians. Um, or they might have been Christian. Yeah, they're probably Christians from their home country, but they can't. They can't fit into any church. It's a survival instinct. They don't have the language, so they'll start a church. It may just be a house church. It may be a family meeting gathering, and and it probably will grow if there are other migrants. But it's only done in that their their home language or home dialect. Okay, um, but they're in survival mode. But then after a little while, um, ethnic churches will move into the settlement phase. That is, they start making longer term plans. And it's because they have now a second generation. So what initially started as a few families um, just trying to worship together. Oh, wow, their kids have grown up. And then you realize, hey, the kids speak the local language. And they don't want to worship in Vietnamese. Um, so we better start thinking about how to cater for the kids. Do you know what I mean? And that's going to have to be in English. And then these kids turn into youth and young adults and so on. And at this point, the settlement phase, these churches, if they can get enough money together, they'll try and buy a building. In fact, a lot of ethnic churches, it really, it's really baffling for me. Because as a church planter, I'm like, what? you know, if you, if you haven't got the money and you're independent, you're a part of a, a denomination, like it just doesn't make sense if you're still like 150 big to spend $4 million on a building. Like where are you going to get that kind of money if no one's helping you? But they'll do those kind of things. They won't have any staff, but they'll buy a building. These, this is an ethnic church mentality. And the building may be completely unsuitable and actually limit them long-term in ministry and they will you know, actually gr not grow because of the building. But then in their mentality, it's 
we need a building. Because I think it's part of the ethnic, the migrant mindset that's driving them at this. When they're not thinking gospel or growth, they're thinking, this is like that buying a house. It's security. Yeah. So um, this is when the settlement phase happens. Um, and, they, and they will probably begin to network with other churches in their own ethnic stream. So, you know, there's every second year there's a big Vietnamese conference for Vietnamese churches. And if you know anything about Vietnamese churches in Australia, none of them are that big. But all of them get together every two years in different cities that are around Australia. I didn't even know this existed until I started trying to minister to Vietnamese in, in the place I'm trying to plant a church, right? Um, and they're all small. They're all, they're all in the settlement phase. Um, but they, they'll get together as part of the settlement phase. The third stage, relationship building. And that's often done by the, second gen- the next generation. They're now growing up. They're interacting with and being ministered to and, being ministered, uh, and ministering with churches that aren't in their ethnic streams. This is when a lot, of, um, a lot of them are being picked up by university ministries, campus ministries. They're going to, you know, uh, if you're from New South Wales, Ketuba conferences, or they might come to Geneva Push. To just, and usually they're just hungry to get anything they want. But they're also beginning to build relationships because they can bridge those cultures. They'll be able to speak Chinese at home with their parents or Chinese with the, the auntie, aunties and uncles in their church. But they're actually more comfortable um, speaking English with, um, so they'll feel kind of in between two cultures, but they can build relationships. Um, now, these churches begin to be noticed by those outside of its stream because they tend not to be the, the tiny little churches anymore. Um, and there's increasing openness when they're in the relationship building stage. Um, some of them will even hire non, non-ethnic pastors on their staff because it'll be like, well, we need, we need an English minister, um, but let's, let's get an Aussie guy, Right? And this happens a lot in Chinese churches, quite a lot of them with, with non-Chinese English pastors, even though there's, you know, there's, there's still quite a lot of um, perfectly good candidates. from, from I mean, that, that's, They're happy to do that because they're already a little bit more open. Um, and then some churches move to the independent identities phase. Um, they're strong enough to even have their own parachurch organizations. I'm part of one of them in Sydney. It's quite a big one called RICE, which is a youth network. And it's like, I think we're up to 50, 60 churches, and they're predominantly Asian or Chinese or Korean churches. They put on an evangelistic event annually and other things, but the, the, the main event is, you know, 3,000 youth, and they hear the gospel. And uh, it's, it's, quite a, it's quite a thing. Um, uh, and they even have their... And so at this stage, you may even have that ethnic church or that, that group of churches begin to have their own... Um, ecosystem. So they'll have their own theological training centers. So there's, you know, there's a Chinese theological college that started a couple of years ago. Do you know what I mean? Um, they're able to now come to the table, in, so to speak, in city or nationwide discussions amongst church groups. So, like, again, I think the Chinese church is in this kind of phase in Australia, where um, there used to be, with Ketuba conferences, you would tick what denomination you're part of, and be like Anglican, Baptist, and then there would be category Chinese. But actually, Chinese churches are not its own denomination because there are Chinese Presbyterian churches, there are Chinese Baptist churches, but they would have a category Chinese because, funnily enough, they identify more with that than they do with the denomination. But it means that, the, you know, again, that independent identity stage, they're, they're valuable and people want to know what the Chinese churches think about that. Um, okay? And then, again, some get to international influence stage where they're actually able to contribute internationally. I think probably the American... It's like the American Korean churches, American, the ones that have been around for a lot longer, probably are more in this stage. 
um, and even their country of origin is seeking out its people to go back. So that's, you know, that's, I'm not sure that any ethnic group in Australia is quite in that stage yet. Okay, so that's the sort of, um, yeah, this is, it kind of explains uh, why ethnic churches look different. Like, you know, you've got everything from that tiny little Samoan congregation down the road to the big Chinese church in Surrey Hills. Because they're at different phases. And it's, yeah, hopefully this has been helpful just to chart its phases and why they're different according to the migrant experience. Yeah, do you want to ask any questions or make any comments about that? Where do you think the Indonesian churches are? Um, yeah, I've been thinking about your thing. Um, probably, I would say a lot of them are still within uh, settlement. So you don't, actually one of them, Biggest problem. I don't know about the Chinese churches, but a lot of Indonesian congregations are losing their second generation. So children who are up to uni and practically become all these. Yeah, uh, and we'll talk about that. Yeah, yeah. They, they just want they just want nothing to do with the, mm. their parents' church. Either they stop going to church, yep. or they go to a different church, yep. an Anglo congregation, or, or probably a more multi yep. uh, uh, ethnic congregation. So yeah. only a handful of them are probably at stage three or four mm. yeah. yeah yeah that's probably true mm. yeah. I think the Chinese churches are in stage four mm. but they're probably more ahead of the game because they've been around for longer yeah. um, so the first ethnic arguably the first ethnic congregation was the Chinese Presbyterian Church which started in the late 1800s um, and the first independent Chinese church which is the church I grew up in was a split You'd like to think church but most ethnic congregations, are, most ethnic churches begin by church splits. Yeah. Um, that was in 1965, and that was the first independent Chinese church in, in Australia um, that wasn't belonging to a congregation. Uh, so they've, you know, they've had a lot more time. Um, yeah, but um, yeah, yeah, I think they got frustrated with the system. <laughs> yeah, so um, yeah. So I think they're a bit ahead of the game, but it's really interesting because I, I keep saying to my, my uh, the guys I'm meeting who go to Vietnamese churches, they're just 20 years behind the Chinese churches. Everything you, they're experiencing, and probably Indonesian churches a little bit ahead of the Vietnamese, everything you're experiencing, the Chinese churches have experienced, or some are still experiencing, depending on where they are. You know, second generation people leaving. No one really between the ages of 25 and 45. That's typical ethnic church, and not just Chinese Asian churches. Yeah. Okay. Um, and that actually is a good segue to talk about the complexities, because these are there are some things about ethnic churches that are uniquely complex. Um, one is multi generational, um, because every church obviously has different generations. But when it comes to migrant generations, you're talking about a whole different ball game, right? As we, as I hypothetically even say, you know, kids are speaking better Spanish than you. <laughs> um, do you know how we classify? Like what, what are the general kind of generations that might exist in a migrant community or a migrant church? Do you know what labels we use? ABC. Yeah, ABC. So what generation? Because so Australian-born Chinese or Australian... What, what generation would you classify them in? So the second generation. Yeah, the second or third or fourth or fifth. You know, I think there's Chinese in Australia since the gold rush era. So you actually do have fifth generation Chinese. They're rarer, but they're, you know... There are some. But yeah, they're Australian-born Chinese. Yeah? Um, so they're second or third um, or, or onwards. What, what, yeah? what, what other labels do we have? What other generations? 
first generation were the people who have actually moved to. Yeah, so the first generation migrants, they're the ones who've actually migrated as adults. Sorry. Yeah. Okay. Um, so there's first generation, there's second generation who are born here, then there's third and onwards. Now, we don't generally even classify from third onwards. Well, third, yes, maybe, but for fourth onwards, there's no point because they're so. They're so Australianized that, you know, there's no, there's no real value in talking about them as a separate group. Mm. Um, so three, I kind of call it three plus, mm. okay? Um, so uh, your first generation, what's their heart language? Yeah, whatever they're coming from. Yep. Um, and where, uh, and who, who are they likely to hang around? Yeah, their own people, okay? Your second generation, Australian-born, so, yeah, Australian born and Australian raised. What's their heart language? Both. Oh, well, their heart language is still Chinese. No, actually. Their heart language would be English. Well, yeah. Born, yeah. yeah. I mean, they, a lot of them will speak, and some of them will speak perfectly fluent. Because, mm. you know, their, kids, their, their parents make sure they can communicate with their children, yeah. send them yeah. to Chinese school. Yeah. Um, they might even be able to read and write. Mm. But their heart language will be English. Mm. Yeah. Um, so in what way does English become the heart language for a second generation rather than what they speak at home with their parents? It's because it's the, 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 um, the language they're educated in. Mm. Okay. So a lot of them, actually, funnily enough, a lot of Australian-born Chinese will not speak a word of English until they go to school because their parents only speak to them in Chinese. Yeah, yeah. But actually, that's the best way of actually cultivating true bilingualism mm. is, uh, you, you know, you, you give them only one and then... Because uh, you understand that when they go to school, that's all they're going to want to speak. And actually, once they hit school, they start wanting to speak Chinese, uh, English to their parents too. But some families will really insist, no, you only speak to us in Chinese. Or it's not insistent out of that purpose, but just out of necessity because parents don't really speak much English still. Yeah. But their heart language will be English. Yeah. Okay. And who will they hang around? Yeah, Australians? Yeah, what do you guys think? Other second generations? Yeah. Any other thoughts? Other Asians. Other Asians, possibly. So a little bit wider, but maybe, yeah. Yeah, the answer is it depends. Mm -hmm. It really depends. So when I grew up in the kind of northern part of Sydney, um, I, I'm not an ABC. I was born overseas. Um, but uh, most of my ABC friends were happy to... In fact, they, they didn't want to be Chinese. Okay, because in that northern part of Sydney, the schools were not like they are now, where the same schools now are 80 90% Chinese. A lot of them Australian-born Chinese. And so back then, they wanted just to be like the Aussie. Nowadays, in those same suburbs, um, in commerce faculties and universities, all their friends are Chinese or Asian. Mm -hmm. And so actually, they don't, they kind of, they're Australian-born, they speak perfect English, but they actually don't mingle that well with other Aussies. It's, it's partly where you, where you are. In, in country, um, Victoria country, New South Wales, they'd be perfectly happy with mm -hmm. you. In fact, they probably spend all their time trying to just be like the Aussie kids who play cricket and rugby. Mm -hmm. right? In some suburbs in Sydney, like Hurstville, they barely know Anglo friends because there's just not enough of them around. Do you see what I mean? So it depends. It really does depend. They will, the, the second generation really feel torn. You know, they really feel between cultures. Um, they also have this certain flexibility, though. And then third plus, yeah, you're really looking at them just being Aussie. Now, there's actually one generation most people forget, and it's what we call the 1.5ers. Mm. 
Okay, well, 1.5 is not Australian-born, didn't come as adults, but they came as children, usually before the age of puberty. All right, I'm a 1.5er, otherwise sometimes known as ARCs, Australian Raised Chinese. Um, and they actually are a unique category, because even more than the ABCs, they, are tru they truly can go either way. So some Australian Raised Chinese are very happy with the first generation guys. Culturally, they you know, listen to the same music, you know, from you know, Korean pops music or whatever. Other ARCs are more comfortable with the ABCs. Well, some, like me, just depends on who I'm with, <laughs> okay? Because I speak Mandarin fluently, I can read and write, but actually English is my heart language. So, yeah, but English is still likely to be the heart language because they will have the majority of their high school university in English. And they won't speak, and that's why I say before puberty is kind of important, because they won't speak English with an accent. Because there is something about the human brain when you learn another language before, around puberty, you actually can pick it up as a local. After that, you'll, you'll carry even just a slight hint of an accent, even if you're, the level of your language is actually quite good. So, you know, guys like me can actually go either way. Um, and uh, and the, the 1.5 is actually quite important, um, and I'll come to that when it comes to, I think, reaching multicultural Australia. Um, you want to find them and you want to you use them. Love them. Yeah. Um, and it sounds like I'm a big nerding myself, but, you know, <laughs> they're actually a rare find and you need to find them. Okay, so um, they're multi-generational, which, uh, which is com complex. You see, just think, every ethnic church beyond a certain you know, stage, when they get to at least stage three relationship building, are going to have these complex number of generations. That's going to... That's, that's, and, and because the generations are, are separated by culture and language in different ways, it's not just like any, any church with three generations. You know, there's... There's a lot more to it. Um, the other complexity is what we call time capsuling. Um, that is, because they've come from a survival instinct phase, um, what, and when you're, when you're just trying to survive, you, 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 you're desperate. And so you just, your instinct is to conserve as much as you can from your source culture, right? Because you're now in a foreign place. <laughs> I just, you know, everything that, that was there, I want to conserve. Um, so church tradition, church practices, you know, you're, you're, you've got this conservative instinct. Um, and families are like that. Values and, you know, customs, they get even more conservative. Now, the interesting thing is why we, why we call it time capsuling is because you've time capsuled. So when you migrated, whether it was 1970s Vietnam or 1980s Hong Kong, you, you stay in 1970s Vietnam and you stay in 1980s Hong Kong. But if you go to Hong Kong now, they're in 2014. So they've moved way. Their churches have way past you. But you, as a Chinese church, because you started in 1965, you, you keep 1965. And it's actually really odd and really frustrating. But it comes out of a survival instinct. All right? So ethnic churches tend to be really conservative. They don't move, to, they don't move very easily to new forms of worship, new ideas. Um, even if the home country has moved way past that. Ethnic families are the same. If you compare a, you know, a 20-year-old migrant family and their parents' values with the country they're from now, you, it, it wouldn't be recognizable. Like, it's just so different because they've moved on, but they've time capsuled, you know? That's going to be complex because you're going to, um, yeah, as I'll see, you see in a moment, that's going to cause some serious friction with the next generation. The next issue is, uh, oh, I missed one. Um, 
I was going to add, it's multicultural. I kind of mentioned this morning, like, there are ethnic churches that, even though they're mono-ethnic, they're multicultural, because, like, the Chinese ethnicity is really multicultural because of where Chinese people come from. You know, at least five or six different centers. There's also even, like, Fijian Chinese, and, you know, because they've just gone everywhere, and they're going to have their own. Um, it's really hard in those churches because they have multicultural conflicts, even though they're the same. I would say an African church would be similar. You know, like unless you're looking at a, you know, a, a like a Kenyan church, but a lot of because they're not there's not, not so many of them, they often will be um, gathered around the the bigger homo, homogeneous unit. But like if you go to an African church and you assume that that's one culture, you're going to be very very wrong. Mm-hmm. Similar with subcontinentals, mm-hmm. right? Indian, Pakistani, Sri Lankan, Bangladeshi, they're all different. And sometimes we just think, well, they're kind of all the same, right? But actually there's multicultures in that one church. So that's the other complexity, which all leads to conflict. Okay, this is the real thing about ethnic churches is, I mean, as if there are not enough sinful reasons for churches to have conflict. Ethnic churches are just like tinderboxes. Okay? Because all of those factors make for spectacular conflicts if, if ignited. You know, the generational one, the time-capsuling one, the cultural one. Um, as I said, most Chinese churches exist because of church splits, not church planting. Um, and this is where if you are a non-ethnic church and you decide, I'm going to have an ethnic congregation, it's actually helpful to, to, to at least get, get a realistic picture of where it could go south. Because, as I said, it can go south really quickly. Especially, it's not so bad if the, the church is just chugging, the congregation is chugging along. If the congregation becomes vibrant, big, influential, has money, in, in fact, what if it becomes the biggest congregation? Because there are some suburbs where the Anglo congregations are the ones that are shrinking, and the ethnic ones. But, uh, but they're not the ones in power. They're not the senior minister. So what are they going to do? They're going to feel misunderstood. They're probably just going to up and leave. And so that's not healthy either. Do you know what I mean? So I think if you're a non-ethnic church, you're thinking... Yeah, I want to reach out for all good intentions. And I'll even you know, hire a, a Thai pastor or you know, a Chinese pastor to do that. Um, you do want to think carefully, I think, um, from the staffing point of view, from the cooperation point of view, what kind of person you get. You'd rather be more careful, even though the temptation is you know, because it'll grow, and it does grow, but you don't want to be facing some of those split issues much later on. Because then you've, got an in, you've also got a st- from a staffing issue potential cultural conflicts as well. It's hard to hold those things together. It's worth doing, but yeah, if you're not prepared for it, then you could run into more trouble later on. Okay, so that, it's again because of the conflict. And if you're assuming, for example, I'm going to start a Chinese congregation in my, um, in, my, in my church, which is not an ethnic church. And, you know, those kids will grow up and they'll just slot, because they're second generation, they'll slot back into uh, our morning service or our, our youth service. Well, that's St. Paul's Carlingford had to start an ABC service. Because they didn't quite slot in. Do you know what I mean? So that's the complexity of it. The second generation may not fit very well with, with the dominant culture. So that, you know, are you prepared to, you know, so the ideal is yes, they'll just slot back in. May not actually work out. So you have to think through some of those issues as well. Yeah? Okay. They're the complexities. Any questions you want to ask or comments you want to make at this point? We're almost done. Just one more point, and then, um, yeah, we can talk more or go for coffee. Um, I kind of want to um, say there, the ch- in terms of challenges, um, and really this just applies to the Christian and myself, um, I think if you're from an ethnic church, 
Um, these, are, these are things I think um, you guys need to think about. And there's probably more to this, so please feel free to bounce back at me. But I think the first thing I'd say to Anthony Church is you've got to think about the future. You're not always, hopefully, going to be in survival stage. You're not always, hopefully, going to be in settlement phase. You, you've got to be thinking, where are we now? What are the next steps? And plan towards it. What are we going to look like when we're no longer in survival but settlement? What are we going to look like when the second generation are going to want to build those relationships? Why do we lose the second generation? Often, one of the reasons is because other people are investing in them when we're not. Because Katoomba conferences are, university ministries are. And they're giving them training and Bible teaching and a voice and leadership. And we're not. We're still treating them like kids. Okay? That's why we lose them. Right? And not necessarily because they don't like your, the church they grew up in, but because the opportunities exist outside. So I think ethnic church really needs to think about heading towards the next phase and the next phase and the next phase. Um, my next one is ethnic churches. You've got to let the kids grow up. And that's probably the biggest problems I see across the board in almost every ethnic church. Is often because they're traditional cultures. Um, in Chinese culture, you're still a kid at 40. It's <laughs> crazy. You know, you have, often you have 30-year-old people living with mum and dad, you know, and, um, and you don't think about even moving out until you get married. And if you're going to get married, mum and dad better approve of you getting married and you better have a job that you can buy a house with before you can get married. So um, in the church context, they don't let the kids grow up. Um, what happens is ethnic churches, the, all the power and the center of gravity, their eldership meetings, if you're a Presbyterian system, or their staff meetings, will all be in mother tongue. Which actually means, even if you have an English congregation and they have its lead, their leadership, they, they don't speak the language. They can't even, you know, they can't even um, participate in the, in the, so in, in, the, in the, the discussions of the church. They feel completely disempowered and especially because you treat them like kids. And a lot of um, ethnic churches just treat their English ministries like ba- glorified babysitting. They'll even get them like the Australian pastor. But the poor Aussie pastor gets treated like the babysitter. And very few of them stay for any longer than a few years for those reasons. And the, the big mindset is, look, ethnic churches, quite frankly, you just need to let the kids grow up. You need to empower them to lead. You need to, dis- you need to redistribute the weight of who has the power to the second generation because they are the future. Um, you need to, I mean, a lot of ethnic churches actually do need to have their, their staff meetings, their highest level leadership meetings, at least in two languages, bilingual moving towards probably English. And the churches that do that. that is that you inadvertently lock out the senior people when you move to English because they don't have that necessarily because they're born overseas and they haven't necessarily mastered the language. Yeah. And so if you're transitioning the language, you're essentially shutting them out of... I would say don't do that with services, but with leadership you have to. And and the the older ones need to actually um, not just allow that, but, but encourage that. Because... Um, that generation of migrants will, uh, I mean, firstly, they will also pick up enough English, probably, but also um, the longer that church's, ethnic church has been around, the, the, the heavier, or hopefully if they've been able to retain their, you know, the more that the 40-year-old um, elders, who now should be the elders of the church, are going to be either 1.5 generation or second generation people. Mm-hmm. And um, if you don't already begin to move towards that, you're never going to get them to stick around long enough to get to 40 because they're going to leave when they're 25. You see what I mean? 
So I actually think that's a really big call, and most, most ethnic churches aren't willing to make those kind of calls because they're, they're too afraid of, oh, no, you know, we'll lose everything. Again, it's that survival time capsuling sort of thing. But I think this is one of those big calls that ethnic churches need to make, probably at, at the stage that your church is at. If you don't make those calls now, you'll regret it in 10, 15 years' time because you won't have anyone who's 40 years old and able to be an elder. You know what I mean? So, um, next one is resist fragmentation. Um, I think ethnic churches can't thrive long term if they... I think one of the strengths of an ethnic church is it potentially can reach the whole family of that ethnic community in a way that just having an, uh, a, a Chinese congregation in a, in a non-ethnic church can't. A Chinese congregation in a non-ethnic church can only reach first generation, maybe 1.5. Do you know what I mean? Um, and then if they... I mean, but if, they, if the second generation fit in perfectly well with the main congregations, then fine and dandy, you can reach the, all of them. But if they can't, then, you know, a lot of ethnic churches or churches with, independent, with, with ethnic congregations, uh, it's just easier to fragment. So, yes, we have a Chinese congregation, we're a non-ethnic church, but I just, because they're growing, just let them do their thing, and I'll just kind of be hands-off. We don't really... And then you eventually become like almost two churches just meeting in the same building, right? Or some ethnic churches will, um, again, because it's easier... Um, just let the English side and the Chinese side run independently. But I think the fragmentation not only is a problem because it may lead to splits later on, it's also a problem because without a united church vision, you actually can't, I think, successfully reach the whole family. And migrant communities are based around families. And a lot of people actually, funnily enough, go back to ethnic churches, even Australian-born Chinese, Australian, like, second generation, because... As the older they get, the more that they feel like they want to have ties with the... With the it's, it's funny. It's a really... Like, I've got a third or fourth generation Chinese who actually has gone back to a Chinese church because they now, when they're in their 40s, want to connect back with their culture, even though in their 20s they resisted it. But also because they, they have elderly parents who only speak Chinese and they really want to now, you know, minister to them. So... Ethnic churches, one of the strengths of ethnic churches is you can. And so if you are an ethnic church, resist fragmentation. It's, you need to have a vision that keeps the generations together in the, in the same vision. Um, I don't believe, personally, that the future of ethnic churches is to... One thing I really got frustrated growing up in ethnic churches when they tried to get congregations to mash together. So we who were in the English congregation had to keep doing these things with the Chinese congregation. And so you end up with like, you know, church house parties where announcements have to be made in three languages and it's just painful for everyone. Um, so when I say kind of unity in our church, how we do it is I don't really work too hard at, you know, forcing unity amongst congregation members, especially because when you get to a certain size, you can't even have unity often within your own congregation they tend to click and fragment. What, what I think is really important in my model of ministry is the, the, the senior leadership work together. So all of my pastors, all of my elders, they have to have the attitude, we are pastors and elders of this whole church, all of the congregations. Mm-hmm. That's where I keep the unity. And that's when we, when in our model of multi, what, what we're trying to implement is a multicultural ministry, sort of the hub model, where we're one church with possibly quite a few different types of homogeneous some heterog- more heterogeneous unit. Um, I'm not really interested in how I have combined events with that. You know, I think occasionally like Carol's event or you know service that would be a great show of unity. Youth group, 
Um, kids' ministry is often where they... But I'm more interested in what the, the leadership does. So I, I'm really careful about the staffing and how we work together. They've got to have that attitude. And that's one way you can prevent fragmentation is you work harder at the leadership level because um, that shapes the ethos of the church. Um, the last one is, um, I think if you are an ethnic church, you have unique opportunities. Um, they are, uh, the ethnic churches are fertile incubators um, for the best missionaries and cross-cultural planters and leaders. Because if you're an ethnic, if you're a migrant, um, if you, even if you're a second generation, you grew up between cultures. And um, so I have missionary friends in Thailand, and uh, they've had different churches come and do short-term missions, partner churches. And they've always said, so some of their partner churches are Chinese churches, and they've often said to me, um, and it's not even because they're Asian-looking, but just that the, 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 the teams that come from Chinese churches, they just have to w- work a lot less with them on things like cultural faux pas and not saying and doing stupid things because they grew up between cultures. They already, it's almost instinctive when they, to think cross-culturally. Um, and so your second generations, but particularly your 1.5ers, who grow up never really feeling like any culture is home, they're actually great missionaries. And I think they're the ones you really need. If you're an ethnic church, they're the ones who can change your ethnic church into a multicultural or have a, a more multicultural vision. So I think it's incumbent on people like me to, to try and open some of those doors, even though that's not a door that um, ethnic churches often see. I have no idea how it's going to go down. We're just taking our first steps into a Vietnamese community, mm-hmm. and that's only just a half a cultural step away. But I'm hoping that'll open some doors into cultures that are three, three or four steps away, like the Lebanese, you know what I mean? Because now we're going to be situated in a city that has different cultures. So... Um, it's your 1.5ers that can kind of try and hold them together, and they're a great resource. And then a lot of ethnic churches are the best places um, to find future gospel workers for multicultural Australia. And I'll come to that in a moment if you're part of a non-ethnic church. But if you're part of an ethnic church, then this is, these are the resources you have at your fingertips. So we, we've got to be thinking about how to, how to use them for the gospel. Um, or even to be generous, actually. So I think ethnic churches can worry so much about, oh, yeah, they're poaching all of our kids. Um, we want to be healthy, but we want to say, that's a great thing. Like, if some of our you know, Samoan second generation are being used to reach the other Tongan, you know, um, other kind of Pacific Islanders, and they're not from Samoa, but for them Tonga, but, you know, they can make those bridges that we can't. Let's send them out. Do you know what I mean? Like, so the frustrations you're having with that Samoan church, um, it's probably because they're in survival stage. You know, but if, if they can grow strong enough to get to relationship building or independent identity phase, the second generation, you know, you might be able to do something with them. They should be initiating that kind of stuff, but they're not going to be there while they're still in survival phase. Okay, so probably more interesting for you guys, for the majority of you, is what about non-ethnic churches? Okay, so I think there's three things. Minister to, minister with, minister from. Okay. Um, I think out of gospel generosity and kingdom-mindedness, even if you have nothing to gain from them, it's worth ministering to that um, tiny little Samoan church or African church. Well, at least trying. I know they're resisting. But they're so under-resourced. They probably... There's Vietnamese churches. Um, we started our youth group with two Vietnamese churches, one of which has a bunch of young people. They don't even have an English service. So they're not even talking about... They don't have English services. They don't have training for their leaders. They have nothing. So they're, they're young adults go to church, they understand nothing. 
and they're expected to run the kids' program and the youth program. So they're getting no feeding, and they're supposed to feed the next generation. Most of them are just barely Christian themselves. So I said, look, you guys, you know, how about I train you guys, and I'll help you start a youth group, right? Um, and they really appreciate it. These guys are like sponges. They love it, you know? Um, and I, I think that's the kind of minister to them. Nicola, is there? Yep. Sorry, we need to wrap up. There's oh. another group coming up. Okay, I thought we had till 6 o'clock. I thought we had to 6 o'clock. Oh, done. Okay. So, anyway, that's the first one. Minister to them. Um, because, also, the other thing is, they'll always be better to reach their own ethnic group than we are. So, if you can strengthen them and help them move through the phases, great for the kingdom. Oops. Oh, anyway. The other one was minister with them. Um, uh, so, especially in regions like Southwest Sydney, um, if, if there's already a Lebanese church or a... Um, and you, can't, you just don't have the resources, you don't have the people. Just find a Lebanese church, minister to them, and maybe partner with them. You know, that's, that's a really easy solution to, in a sense, get a multicultural slant to your ministry. And then, um, thirdly, minister from them. Um, again, recognizing that ethnic churches can be some of the best incubators for missionaries and cross-cultural planters. So, um, especially those ones that, like the Chinese church, they, they do send a lot of people into full-time ministry now. Um, look out for the second generations, particularly look out for any 1.5ers. My current um, MTS guy, my ministry trainee, he was going to another church, and it wasn't just to poach him. Well, actually, I didn't have an idea to poach him, but he was in a Chinese church that had no training. And I met him, and I knew, okay, he's born overseas, he speaks fluent English, but he's also got not just Chinese, but a few other Chinese dialects. I'm like, this guy is worth watching. So I just said to him, can I mentor you? Can I coach you? And his church was okay with that. And then over the last couple of years, first I started coaching him, mentoring him. And then he decided, no, he wanted to actually come and be a trainee at my church. A bit of a loss for his church. But because, I, you know, every time I find guys like that, I'm like... So I think those are things you can actually do. You know, sometimes you can do it without the church's permission. And it doesn't go down well. But if you can build a relationship with those kind of people... Um, and you, you've tried every other avenue. Feed into them, mentor them, disciple them. Because they can actually be some of the best people for the kingdom in the future. Hopefully you won't burn too many bridges in the meantime. Sorry, I thought we had till six, so I was taking my jolly time. Um, any kind of last questions you want to ask before um, they kick us out? I don't know if it's a quick one, but it's a good bridge, but I can't yeah. time. Um, so you mentioned helping ethnic church, as a non-ethnic church, helping ethnic churches move through the stages. Yeah. What does that look like? Uh, Can you help them move through the stages? How can you speak friends? It depends on where they're at. Yeah. If they're in the survival phase, they've got to survive long enough to be in the settlement phase. And yeah. settlement is long enough to be in the relationship building. Um, it, once they're in a relationship building phase, helping them build relationships. Because yeah. they'll want to build relationships. Yeah. So actually saying, hey, we want to build relationships with you. That, by the way, goes for migrants as well. A lot of the survival phase migrants, yeah, they'll just stick to each other. There'll be some in the settlement and especially relationship building phases where they're, they're Chinese mums, but they're actually really keen to meet the other mums. Um, they just need you to take the initiative because they're Chinese and they're not going to speak out. And, you know, they're the minority group. And actually, you can build some great relationships. Some, some churches have grown their, their Asian uh, group in their church simply because of one Chinese mum who felt really welcomed and now has invited her whole group of Chinese mums to come along to church, not just the play group. It just takes one. So that's, that's what I mean. So it depends on what phase they're in. Yeah. Okay, I think we should wrap up. How about I pray? Father, we pray that you would help um, us all where we are at and depend, uh, even with all the different churches and types of experiences. Father, would you enable us to 
um, reach this diverse country that we live in. For your glory, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen.